It was very strange not to be here last week. I hope you all were safe. I know that some people received some storm damage. Let me get my notes up here. So I had a whole extra week to prep for this, which means it's twice as long as it was originally. Uh, we were, no? Twice, oh, he's got a lot of faith, that one. Uh, we were going to have little bag lunches for you because we're going to be here a while. Just kidding, kind of, sort of. I have certain people expecting this of me, and I don't want to let them down, so, uh, so here goes. I asked Google, <laughs> I asked Google, hey Google, what is the greatest love story ever told? And of course, Google answered. I got uh, 266 million responses in half a second, and Google was kind enough to rank them in order too, which was kind of cool. Number one, obviously, Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, right? No? Uh, number two, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Number three, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Number four, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Number five, The Thornbirds by Colleen McCullough. Now, I'm not sure how you feel about this list, but I'm pretty disappointed that a tale as old as time didn't make it. I mean, seriously, Google, where's Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> While you might have your own list and your own rankings, our text today is going to point us to the ultimate love story, one that exceeds the boundaries of time, exceeds our ability to measure it, and will last for eternity. It is beyond human comprehension, but we're going to do our best. And this love story is the love that exists within the Trinity. It is the love that the Father lavishes and pours out on his Son through the Spirit, and it is the love that the Son reflects back to the Father in his, his obedience and his will through the Spirit. And this tale is beautifully woven from Genesis to, ex, uh, to Revelation. And it's this, this amazing tapestry. And we are going to pull out a couple of these threads and see how they're related to our text today. This beautiful love is infinite. And because God is infinite, he can share it infinitely without it ever once diminishing the love of the Trinity. Think about that. This eternal God of love has incorporated us into this love story, and we're going to see how that plays out here in our text. Today, I want to weave this tapestry for you with three particular threads. God's Word has many of these threads, and, and we were talking about um, how we're going to explore these in, in future series. Threads that are woven through from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Themes that are consistent that help us get a broader understanding of God's word and his plan. But first, let's read our text today. Um, here at Timberland, we stand for the reading of God's word, so I would invite you to join me as we read from Revelation 21. Today, we're going to look at how a day is coming when God will reward the perseverance of the saints with his perfect presence. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its height, as width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measures its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of these gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory and all the honor of all the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's a long passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us by your scripture. Thank you for this incredible vision that you blessed John with. He was to then bless the churches in Asia Minor and us today just by writing it down. 
Father, I am ill-equipped to even remotely touch the splendor of this message, so I ask for your spirit to guide us as we, as we open this word, as we digest it, as we look at it. We invite your presence here, Father. In your son's name, amen. Man, that's a long passage. You guys were getting tired of standing, weren't you? <laughs> Our passage begins with the continuation from chapter 20, where death and Hades are judged, where Satan is judged, and all of rebellious humanity is judged and thrown into the lake of fire. So we know that we're looking at a future event here, okay? There's also a warning there as a reminder of the coming judgment and a reminder to those who prove to be unfaithful and lack perseverance. But to those who conquer, we get this amazing vision and these promises. Now there's a ton of stuff in this chapter, okay? There's a ton of stuff here, which is why this is going to be so long. I'm just kidding. And we're going to get to some of it, but I, I encourage you to come back on the 27th, of, uh, of the Wednesday 27th, for the Q&A time. Because I'm not going to get to it all, I promise. A couple of things might have stood out to you, but I was wondering if you caught the change in verb tense in the first eight verses. We go from present, God's place is with man, to future, they will be, he will be, he will wipe, death shall be. Then we go back to continuous as it happens now. Behold, I am making all things new. Remember, John is witnessing a divine vision here, and these, this vision has taken him through several different perspectives surrounding the same period of history, the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. And we've seen it from different camera angles, and he's giving us all these different perspectives to give us the most full understanding of what this is going to look like. From John's perspective, most of what he's seeing here has, is taking place in his time. The church is being persecuted. Christians are dying for their faith. Christians are, are, are not persevering. All of these things are happening. He also sees God being glorified in heaven by the saints, by the angels. All of these things are happening in John's time. But he also gets glimpses of the future like the intense increased persecution of the church, like God's wrath being poured out against sin, like the final judgment, all future events. Just like the present continuous reality of God right now in John's time is him being worshipped, we get another present continuous reality in this statement. The dwelling place of God is with man, and God is currently making all things new. God is creating something new right now. God was creating something new when John wrote this. God is continuing to make something new, and we're going to look at what that means. God's plan to make all things new is currently at work through the redemption and sanctification of his people as he continues to perfect his dwelling space. In our text, we see God's promises about his presence. We see God's promise to reward our perseverance and a warning against those who do not. And we see the perfected state of our future eternity. Our three threads then are presence, perseverance, and perfection. That's right, three Ps. I worked hard to get them. So let's start with presence. 
Our passage contains a marvelous declarative in the present tense. The dwelling place of God is with man. The Bible makes it clear that this was the plan from the start. God created man in his image to spend time with him. We see that in the garden. God never had any intention of being far removed from his most prized creation. His plan was to be with us as we are image bearers of him. But sin prevents us from being able to enjoy and experience God's presence. Why? Because God's glory, his perfect nature and essence, would destroy us in an instant. Check this out from Exodus 33. Moses asked God, please show me your glory. Wow, have any of you ever asked that of God? Check out how God answers him. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, says God, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Wow. Later in chapter 34 of Exodus, we hear that this, this experience right here makes Moses' face radiate. So that when he comes down off the mountain, the people are frightened. Whoa, dude, what happened to your face? It's glowing. The people were afraid of the glory of God. For good reason. But God desires to share his presence with us, to dwell with us. He's made promises to that effect. So he tells, God tells Moses, build me a suitable living space. The tabernacle. I encourage you to read Exodus 35 through 40. We're not going to do that right now because that's a lot. Read Exodus 35 through 40 for a description of this amazing portable tent that was filled with gold, was filled with silver and bronze and fine threads of yarn of scarlet and purple with, with oils and spices and fine woods. Fine craftsmanship went into building this tent that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says that. The Holy Spirit blessed these men to come and build this structure. And then, of course, the central part of that structure was a cubed room described as the Holy of Holies, where the ark would rest and where God's presence would be. And that room could only be entered in once a year by the high priest. And it took him a whole year just to prep for that one entrance. That's how sacred that room was. That's how sacred God's presence is. Read Exodus, guys. It's some cool stuff, crazy stuff. Then, in chapter 40, we read that upon completion, the cloud that led the Israelites descended onto the tent and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meetings because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord prevented Moses from actually being able to enter. 
We have almost this exact same description happening 400 years later when Solomon builds the temple. Again, I encourage you to read Kings, 1 Kings 5-7 through 7 for just amazing description of this structure. Just the amount of gold and the opulence and just the reverence that they took in building this structure is amazing because this was where God's presence was going to be. So much gold. So many cool descriptions that are mirrored in Exodus and in Revelation 21. And just like in the tabernacle, we read in 1 Kings 8.10, when the priests came out of the holy place after putting the ark in there, the presence of God descended and filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand and minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Common thread, common theme. Same thing that we see in the tabernacle. God's glory descended into this holy structure, and his holiness meant that humanity had to get out of the way. Otherwise, we would be destroyed. And so this design of these structures was for God's dwelling place, for God's glory, but it was also for our protection, which is why there's walls, which is why there's thick curtains protecting us from that glory, just like Moses' hand in that cleft, or God's hand protecting Moses in that rock cleft. But in Leviticus, God says, I will make my dwelling among you, Leviticus 26, and my soul shall not abhor you, meaning my presence will not destroy you. And I will make, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. So how do we rectify this promise with this reality of we can't be in God's presence? The glory of the Lord is beyond what we can handle. The promises we read in Revelation 21 is a reminder of the same thread, these same promises that go throughout the Bible. We read the same promise in Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. How do we do this though? How do we get there? Our soul longs to be in God's presence. Read the Psalms, full of examples of how we long to be with God. Psalm 84, wonderful example. But we can't enter his presence. What are we to do? Problem. Solution. This is where the gospel comes in. We are powerless to make ourselves worthy of being in God's presence which is why the God of the universe sent his son Jesus to die for our sins to make us worthy. He made us worthy of his presence because Jesus paid the price for our sin. The cost to be in God's presence, the cost to be in God's presence is more than we can bear. If you get anything, get that. The cost to be in God's presence is more than we can bear. So we need Jesus. God the Father, loving God the Son for all of eternity through the Spirit, says, go and die. This is a love story, but remember? This is a love story. That's love right there. The obedience of the Son but also his willingness to die for our cruddy mess. 
suddenly that separation, suddenly the problem, suddenly those curtains and those walls are no longer necessary. Matthew 27 says that when Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, it says, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Mind you, this curtain was about four inches thick. Who's the strongest person in the room? Tobin, you look pretty strong. You think you could, you could tear a four-inch thick curtain? Probably not. And it was about 60 feet long. From top to bottom, this curtain, this separation, this protection between God's presence and sinful man was torn because of what Jesus did on the cross. That curtain was no longer necessary. Why? Because God is making a new dwelling space. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If you are in Christ, then you are God's temple with Christ as the cornerstone. Amen, indeed. And this dwelling space is under construction, okay? Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 that we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole structure, all God's people, being joined together, grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling space for God by the Spirit. Every day as this gospel goes forward to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people, this building project gets closer and closer to getting done. We see this thread beginning in the garden. We see it in Moses' time. We see it in the kings. We see it in Ezekiel. I highly encourage you to read Ezekiel. Crazy, crazy stuff in there. There's too much to unpack in just one message here, guys. Read the second half of Ezekiel. A lot of comparisons to what we're reading in Revelation. We see this thread extending all the way to this vision where God says, I want to be with my people. What a tremendous love story. This pursuit, this millennia's worth of pursuit to be with his people. And then here in Revelation 21, at last the construction is finished and God declares, it's done. Now let's take a look at the construction process, which is our second point, perseverance. Just as in Exodus with the tabernacle and in 1 Kings with the temple, the construction, the breaking of ground had a starting point. And then the construction ensued. This final temple that God is creating for himself also had a beginning point, also had a groundbreaking moment. And that was the cross when Jesus said, it's finished. So what actually happened there? What actually happened on the cross for Jesus to say, it is finished? Well, I'll tell you, for us to become worthy material to construct a dwelling place for God, Jesus had to pay for our sin. We only become acceptable building material because of the blood of Jesus. But we still need to be refined. Hmm. Check this out from Psalm 51. 
Purge me with hyssop, which is a antiseptic shrub used in the Middle East. It smelled really good, too. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Catch this. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What? That's interesting. We should unpack that sometime. That's some good stuff there. What does that mean? Got to do it another time. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Most of you are already singing this in your head now. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Just like gold is an acceptable building material for this temple, it still needed to be purified. It still needed to be refined. Precious gemstones are a worthy building material for this temple, but they still need to be cut. They still need to be polished. Even cedar is an acceptable building material for this temple, but it still needs to be planed. It still needs to be sanded. It still needs to be chiseled. We, too, need to be purged, washed, and reformed in order for us to become acceptable building material. And this process, this sanctification is done by the Spirit in us and through us, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now remember, the Holy Spirit blessed these craftsmen in the Old Testament. They blessed the craft- he blessed the craftsmen for the tabernacle. He blessed the craftsmen for Solomon's temple. But now the Holy Spirit is crafting us into this temple. God's glory will be fully revealed through us at the end of this process. Why? Because his spirit is making us new. But that crafting, that refining, that purging, that cleansing, it doesn't feel very good sometimes, guys. If you were to take this hyssop bush and just rub it on yourself, you're going to take off flesh. 1 James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What kind of eternal temple would this be for God Almighty if it lacked steadfastness? It would be unworthy, is what it would be. Verse 12 in James chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Just like a structural engineer is going to test the integrity of the building project that he's working on, we too, our structural integrity is to be tested. It will be tested. It's guaranteed. Scripture says so. Why? Because this temple is going to be worthy. And in order for it to be worthy, it's going to be cleansed. In order to be cleansed, it's going to have to experience some suffering and some discipline. Time and time again, God declared to the Israelites that blessing and his presence would be theirs if they would persevere. 
But time and time again, the Israelites would fail to persevere, and they would reject God, and they would construct idols and worship idols. And so God's presence left. Read the Old Testament. The most heartbreaking passages are when God's presence leaves a structure that he's been in. It's amazing and terrifying and horrible. And we see this promise today in the New Testament as well. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, if we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we deny Christ, if we replace Christ with idols, we are unsuitable, unworthy building material for the presence of God. It is perseverance that remains the ever-consistent mark of true salvation. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit sustaining us that accomplishes this. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Lest we start to think that this process relies on all of our efforts and all of our strength. No, you're wrong. No, this is the Holy Spirit working through you Just like in those craftsmen in the Old Testament, Holy Spirit blessed them to create this. The Holy Spirit is now cleaning house, getting us ready. Not just getting us ready, but also giving us encouragement. Because this cleansing stuff, we've already said this, it's painful. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that we are being transformed into the image of the Son, the image of Christ. And in order for that to happen, a bunch of this crud has to get out of the way. So God is taking a Brillo pad and scraping it off. And that Brillo pad is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit shows us the word and shows us and illuminates areas in our life that are becoming idolatrous. And he says, time to get that off. Romans 8, 16 through 18 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We get a glimpse of that in Revelation 21. Our perseverance through this, pers- through this purification process through the sanctification, is rewarded by the very presence of God, the very glory of God we read here in Revelation. This is the message that the churches in Asia Minor needed to hear. And it's just as applicable to us today and every moment in between and in the future until Jesus returns. We need to have this, this promise, this longing for God's presence to be with us. Why? Because it's worth it it's worth it because the day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore a day is coming when we will get to share in this glory 
because God's unlimited presence will be with those of us who persevere. Amen, indeed. After all these trials, after all this refinement, after all of this perseverance, we will know perfection because God's will will be perfected in us. God's dwelling, dwelling place will come to a conclusion. This, tra- this tapestry, this particular thread, this is where we get the greatest glimpse of this cosmic love story, and it's pretty amazing. The perfect love and unity we find in the Trinity will one day include man without restriction, without curtains, without walls. We are called co-heirs with Christ, which is a promise. We can claim that promise now, but we're not going to fully experience that right now like we're going to experience it in Revelation 21. We don't know this perfect love and unity because we are still in this world and we are still getting scraped. We are still being sanctified. We are still being prepared for this glorious day. But one day that struggle will come to an end. Picture for me a wedding. A large, lavish wedding. Tons of planning has gone into this event. Tons of work. The anticipation has been building up. And finally the day has arrived. Now imagine for me that God the Father is the Father in this picture. And he's walking down the aisle, and on his arm is the bride, is the church. God the Father is taking this bride to the Son, God the Son, up at the altar. The Father has gone through tremendous pain to make this this bride perfect and acceptable for the Son. But so has the Son. The father sends the son to go rescue this bride because she's in chains. And so this love story between the Trinity has been this this fight to rescue this bride. Not just rescue, but also purify and make holy and to sanctify so that this bride can experience their presence. the, the, the The whole cosmic love story, guys, The whole cosmic love story has been the father preparing this gift for his son. And the son preparing this gift for the father. And we are that gift. Paul describes this very thing in Ephesians 5 when he writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might, what? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. We're reading a lot of splendor here. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be be holy and without blemish. That's exactly what we see here when this angel says, hey John, check out the bride. We see the church cleansed Purified, being presented to God as a worthy dwelling space. We see splendor. We see purity. We see just this awe-dropping magnificence that I bet would have been really hard to describe even for John. If you're not humbled yet, take a second and think about that. 
This bride, this holy city, has the glory of God. It radiates like the most rare jewel, clear as crystal. We will perfectly radiate and reflect God's image. We were created to be image bearers. And at last, we will be able to do so as intended, without restrictions. Remember that numbers have great meaning in apocalyptic literature. And John uses a bunch of numbers here in Revelation 21. He uses the number 12, which signifies the people of God. We've heard of that several times in this, in this series. He uses the, the multiples of 12 to include the whole number of God's people. And then he throws in a 10 there and a multiple of 10. 12,000. That number conveys the idea of complete, perfect presence of God's people. A lot of P's in that sentence. And he says this to convey a very specific message to his readers, saying, none of God's people will be lost. So persevere. And finally, this construction is done. For this love story, God uses the 12 sons of Israel to create a nation for him to declare his glory to other nations and to be the vessel of his promise. And then Jesus comes to fulfill that promise and he gets 12 disciples and he trains them and they become the bedrock, the foundation of this new kingdom to declare it to the nations. We see how this is constructed. We see how this is woven together just so beautifully. The bride has been washed clean, purified, and made complete. And the dwelling place of God is ready for his presence. We could go, we could spend a lot of time going through these descriptions. These gemstones, oh my goodness, so much Old Testament in here. Tons and tons of allusions. Again, highly encourage you to come on the 27th for that Q&A time because Nick has all of the answers. <laughs> Every single one. And if, and if he doesn't, Chris Gorman will fake them. <laughs> He's not even here. I can't even make fun of him. There is one final, final thread here that I want to connect. And it's, it's this thread that goes through the tabernacle and through the temple and then this vision that John sees of the new Jerusalem. And it's the dimensions of this holy, glorified city. And it's described as a perfect cube. And we see this cube in the tabernacle as the holy of holies, the most holy place of God's presence. We see this cube in the temple as the holy of holies where God's presence is dwelling with man. This vision is a vision of the new holy of holies. And instead of being man-made, it is made up of a glorified, holy, refined people from every tribe and every tongue, fully on display, God's glory reflecting off of every face. It's made up of you. It's made up of me. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there the people will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those 
who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This city is safe and secure because the very essence of God fills it. It's a place where glorified man will for an eternity reflect that glory back to God the creator in perfect harmony, in perfect peace, in perfect joy, lacking nothing. James 1.4 says, Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our steadfastness, our perseverance will be rewarded, guys. It has a purpose, and it's God's glory. We will have the full glory of God with us, and we will lack nothing. What are you lacking today? What is robbing you of your peace? What, what idols are you constructing in your life that are diminishing Christ's glory in your life? That's what this passage is for. It's a promise. It's also a gut check. Are you being fashioned into the image of Christ so that you are worthy building material for God's presence. 1 Peter 2, 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Here in chapter 21, we see this marvelous fulfillment of God's promise to be with man. We see the fulfillment of this epic love story between the Father and the Son. We see God's glory. We see God's glory on display without restriction. Persevere, church. A day is coming. This day is coming. Do you want to see his glory? Do you want to see his glory? You can respond. Do you want to see his glory? I want to see his glory. Let's pray.